0: that it is a marriage weekend, not a wedding weekend, uh, just in case you signed up and you're thinking this is not what I signed up for. Uh, it's a marriage weekend, and we are very much looking forward to it. So uh, just wanted to, you know, Rick asked me to tell you guys. Uh, so <laughs> uh, with that said, uh, how about we we get started this morning? Uh, and, I, and I do want to tell you guys, this morning will be a little different. Uh, then we usually do things uh, here at Trinity. Um, here at Trinity, as you know, we believe in expository preaching. We, uh, basically, that means that uh, we like to systematically go through books of the Bible covering every section in order. The goal this is to preach what the Bible is actually teaching in its context, and it helps us preachers uh, not to pick and choose, so that we can be preaching through the whole of Scripture and not just whatever we feel like that morning. This morning, though, we will do things a little bit differently. We will jump around a little bit, which is not our preference, but for today's message, we think it is appropriate. We will jump around a little bit at the beginning of Genesis from chapters 1 through 9. We will jump out a little bit. Uh, And you may be wondering, why in the world are we in Genesis? Aren't we doing a series in the book of Samuel? And the answer is, yes, we are. And so uh, you would be right to ask that question. However... Last week, you may remember, we covered the second part of Samuel 2, chapter 6, which means today we should be starting chapter 7. Now, if you're familiar with the story, if you're familiar with the passage, you might know that in this chapter, in chapter 7, um, it's, it, this chapter itself is, is of huge importance in God's story of redemption. Because in chapter 7, uh, the, the author of, of Samuel covers God's covenant with David. As elders here at Trinity, we decided to hit pause on this series and to take a couple of weeks just to talk about covenants. Because the story of of Scripture, you see, is structured by covenants. We serve a covenantal God, and maybe the word covenant is new to you, but we will get to it today. But we serve a covenantal God. And from the beginning, the way that He has chosen to relate to His people has been through the making of covenants. This morning we will set up the stage for our mini covenant series or covenants mini series, uh, and we will do so by starting at the beginning. We will look at um, Genesis this morning. Our hope for this mini series is that we would give that it would help give you a framework of how the Bible works. We want to help you understand how the Bible is put together. It's not a random stories or events. God is a covenant God, and we will see that he covenants with his people because the storyline of the Bible is marching towards something. There is a purpose in it. Another way um, to say it is, as Lincoln Duncan puts it, covenants form the backbone of the Bible meta narrative. So a misunderstanding of the way that God works through covenants can lead us to a disjointed view in Scripture. If we don't understand the covenant, it may appear as if the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are very different. You, like me, may have uh, been taught that the Old Testament, that in the Old Testament people were saved through works and only after the coming of Jesus, grace entered the picture. We'll see this morning that that is not the case. That grace entered creation, the second Adam and Eve sin, God brought in grace. Because you see, grace and redemption has always been the plan. This morning, I want us to see how grace has been the only plan, not plan B. God is not making things up as he goes. He has had a plan of redemption even before the creation of the universe. And so with that said, uh, let's jump into today's message. Before we actually read a passage, I want to ask the question, what is a covenant? You may be wondering what a covenant is, and there are many different ways to define it. A you know, covenant, you could say, is an agreement. Um, but my favorite, and I believe most helpful, uh, definition of covenant in this conversation comes from O. Palmer Robertson, who, if you haven't read his book, Christ of the Covenants, I would highly, highly recommend it. But in it, he, de- he defines covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And I know that's a, a, a mouthful, but we'll see. You could say in his definition, a bond in blood sovereign administered, you could say that there are three components in a covenant. Number one, there is a relationship and this relationship is unequal. In a covenant, there is one that is in power and then one that is a subject. In old days, you know, there would be a suzerain Lord that would make a covenant with his vassals. Here in Scripture today, we will see that God, in his covenants, I mean, our relationship is unequal because he is a sovereign Lord and we are only his followers. So there is a relationship. In a covenant, there is also a blessing. And in a covenant, there is also a condition, as we will see shortly. So God, in his relationship with humanity, has made two main covenants. The covenant of works with Adam and Eve, which we will talk about in just a second. Um, And the covenant of grace, which we will also cover today. With that said, would you jump with me to Scripture? Would you open your Bibles in chapter 1 of Genesis? If you don't know where Genesis is, it's at the beginning. Um, And so let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 30. And this is the word of the Lord. It says, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed uh, that is on the face of of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Verse 30 says, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, I have given every plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And we're going to stop right there. And Now we're going to jump a little bit. Remember I told you we're going to be jumping? Now I want us to, to, to fast forward to chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This is God still instructing man and woman and he says this to them. He says, uh, the Bible says, "The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge uh, of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so after God and His kindness created all things. He blesses Adam and Eve. He makes what we call a covenant with them. And you may be saying, well, it doesn't use the word covenant, but we will get to that. But God here makes a covenant with them. He blesses them with instruction. He instructed them on how to care for and enjoy the creation he has just made. Now, in the passages we just read, like I said, we won't find the word covenant. So how can we say that there is a covenant? Well... We say there's a covenant because they have all the components of a covenant in this promise. You see, first, there is a relationship. There are two parties in this covenant. God, as the sovereign creator, establishes a covenant with man, with Adam and Eve. He establishes a covenant with them. Now, it's also important that we remember and that you notice that in Scripture, it is always God that takes the the initiative when it comes to covenants. God's relationship with man is different in nature from his relationship with the rest of creation. So God and man have a relationship. So we see the first part of a covenant. There's a relationship. There is also a blessing. In Genesis 1.28, Moses says that God blessed man and woman by giving them a command, which is a little countercultural, isn't it? Interestingly, this command is the blessing itself. You see, this tells us about a, a lot about God's nature Uh, In giving commands to his people, his commands come from his love for man. Let me say this again God's commands are a blessing for his children. When God tells the woman, uh, the man and the woman, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over creation, he is blessing them with the instruction of how to enjoy creation. So, in the promise is the blessing. In the command is the blessing. Now, I want to take a short moment here to emphasize this point. God's law and his commands are not oppressive, but an expression of his love and his care for us, his people. In our flesh, we want to reject any type of law. We want to reject any type of rule, any type of boundary. But a good understanding of God's law and God's character helps us understand that his law is laced with blessings. It's not a transaction, see? We don't obey the law so that we may have blessing, but blessing itself is only found in obedience to God's law. They're inseparable. A couple days ago, after school, Tiago was telling me that that day, uh, during recess, they were playing no-rule soccer. He said it started really fun, uh, but then one of the kids took the ball and ran it, and no-rule soccer became football. Which I will take issue. He has already stole the word football from the world for another sport. But anyways, that's besides the point. But anyways, this kid takes the ball, runs away with it because there's no rule. It's okay. Then another kid takes advantage of the rules and starts kicking everyone. But it's no rule sucker, so it's okay. So you see, for the kids, no rule sucker seems freeing, doesn't it? Because we tend to see rules as oppressive. But the reality is that without rules, just as a game uh, is no fun without rules, and people end up being hurt, a life without boundaries, a a life without uh, without the law, a life without commands is not enjoyable, and people get hurt. So let me ask you this morning. What is your view of God's law? Do you delight in it? Or do you see it as oppressive? Do you see it as a burden? Because God's commands for us are not oppressive. They themselves are a blessing. And in our obedience to them, we find blessing. This leads me to the third part of this covenant. There's a condition in the covenant. And as we said, covenants have conditions and stipulations. And um, And here in Genesis Two verses 16 and 17 the Lord gives the stipulations and conditions for this covenant he tells them, he tells Adam and Eve you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die now it is well worth pointing out a few things about this condition number one, God is saying enjoy all of creation Eat of every single tree. I mean, that is a benevolent God that is calling people to enjoy his creation. But he leaves one condition. The tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. I think it's worth pointing out that this condition is not a condition to earn a blessing. God has already blessed them. And in, in, in his blessing has already been unconditional. He tells them, just go and enjoy but this stipulation, this condition, only delineates where the covenant is broken and the curse comes into effect. This condition, against to what your heart is saying right now, is not heavy-handed or burdensome. We have all at some point wondered why God placed a tree in the garden. Once again, my son, Tiago, this very week, he asked me, why did God put the tree in the garden? We have all asked that question, but the reason God places the tree in the garden is to remind the man and the woman of their place as created beings and God's place as sovereign creator and benefactor. God sets that tree in his kindness to remind them, to remind us of our place. Now this covenant that we just spoke about is commonly known as the covenant of works. Because you see, in all of the history of humanity, this is the only instance when man's relationship with God is dependent on his obedience to his commands. That is why it's called the covenant of works. As you may remember, this covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve is short-lived. Because in the very next chapter, after being deceived by the serpent, Adam and Eve break the one condition God has given them. This, we know, carries terrible Terrible consequences. Adam and Eve know this. In their disobedience, they broke the fellowship they had with God. And what did they do? They hide. And church, that is heartbreaking. Because isn't that our default? To hide from God. They hide because they know the condition. They know the covenant that was made with them. They know that the penalty for their disobedience was death. They know they deserve death now. Surely God will destroy these traitors that wanted to take his place, right? Let's see how God responds to their disobedience. So let's jump to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we will see what we call the covenant of grace. And I want us to go to verse 12. Verse 12 says this It says, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be, uh, uh, be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Way to throw her under the bus. Verse 13 says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Once again, the blame shifting. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between you your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And I want us to stop here for a moment. Actually, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Verse 16. It says this, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. After Adam and Eve sinned against God, and after all their blame shifting, you say that well, the woman you gave me, well, the serpent told me. After all the blame shifting, God responds to their sin in an unexpected way. Instead of smiting them immediately, He could have rightfully and justly just killed them in that moment because He told them right. that was going to be the, that was a condition. Instead of smiting them, though, as He um, as He is listing the consequences of their sin. He makes an unexpected promise of salvation. The thing, though, is that we don't see this as unexpected, do we? We, unfortunately, have come to expect God's mercy as if it's a given. That's a dangerous place to be in. But you see, God promises that there will be one that comes from the offspring of the woman that will, that will bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent shall bruise his heel. Church, this is the first promise of deliverance to a people that deserve death. God makes an unexpected promise. But we usually expect it, don't we? Have you ever thought about the fact that God did not offer, they did not have, I'm sorry, to offer mercy to Adam and Eve? God didn't have to at all. O. Palmer, Palmer Robertson says this, he says, God had absolutely no obligation to man once he had resolved against the Almighty's will and aligned himself with the serpent, who is Satan. But God is gracious. He bound himself by, by oath. Although man proved to be an ungrateful, self-willed rebel, God chose to obligate himself to the sinner. So you see, Adam and Eve are expecting death. God is, instead makes a promise Now before we look at the promise he made, I want you to notice that since the beginning, sin carries consequences in the life of man. Adam and Eve's lives will definitely become harder as they live in a world broken by sin, by death and futility that they themselves unleashed through their disobedience. We won't go into the details of the consequences, which are pretty self-explanatory that we just read, but I intentionally wanted us to read it together so that we would see that sin always carries consequences. So not only would their lives now be, would be difficult, but because they unleashed sin, death, and futility into creation, they would also now experience physical death. But even then, God makes them a promise. in Verse 15 Like I said, we just read it a second ago. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he says, to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see how God curses his enemy, and in the same breath, he blesses his children. This one verse is what we call the proto Evangelion. This is the first time that we see a hint, a promise of grace, a promise of delivery for the sinner. This is the first mention of the good news that God would defeat his enemy on our behalf. See, what happened here is that God extended grace to his people. And this is why we call this the covenant of grace. This is where grace starts. As you can tell, this covenant is not very detailed. Which is why later um, there will be several of what we will call administrations of the same covenant several times what the Lord renews his promise and his covenant with his people expanding them and revealing himself to be more and more gracious the first of these administrations is the covenant with noah unfortunately between the promise uh, in in chapter 3:15 and the story of noah in chapter 6 everything goes downhill pretty quickly <laughs> To the point where the Bible says in chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved them to his heart. God is grieved by the sin of his creation. Then this leads us to chapter six, thirteen, where God says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. You know what comes next? God tells Noah to build an ark for himself and his family and to fill it with the animals. And Noah obeyed everything that the Lord told him. God then preserves Noah and his family through the flood, which leads us to chapter 8. Before we jump to chapter 8, Remember Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember how I mentioned, as we see this shocking story of Uzzah, we may have the same reaction with the flood. We may have this reaction that we think, whoa, that's a little heavy-handed. That God would wipe, away, wipe out all of creation. That's heavy-handed. But the way that we view this says more about us than about God. Because he is holy and righteous. And he had every right. To do with creation as he wills, and he is also good, and because he is good, he extends grace, and he preserves uh, a people for himself. He preserves Noah. This leads us to the covenant with Noah. And that is in chapter eight. And we're going to read chapter eight uh, verse 20 through 9:17. So it's a little bit of a read. But I want to invite you: lean in to the Word of God. Don't zone out. Please follow along and pay attention to what the Word of God tells us. Chapter eight, verse twenty, says this: "It says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar." Now let's pause here. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking: can You imagine that, after all these days and nights in the ocean—I mean, not the ocean, but like you know—in the flood. They finally make it up. Can you imagine these animals like, yes, we made it. (sighs) Finally. And then Noah sacrifices uh, some of them. (laughs) I just thought that was kind of funny. Anyways, verse 21 says this, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth neither will i ever again strike down every living creature as i have done while the earth remains uh, seed time and harvest cold and heat summer and winter day and night shall not cease and god blessed noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth does that ring a bell Verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they will be delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, uh, is its blood. And for and for your life, blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of the man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Of God, For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. One more time. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. And here for the first time in Scripture, we hear the word covenant. He says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds, excuse me, So you see, after the flood, once the waters have receded, God initiates a covenant with Noah. Now there are those who call this covenant the covenant of preservation because in it, God promises to never again strike down all of humanity. This covenant, as we will see in a moment, has different components. The first component of this covenant is a new beginning. You see, after the flood, which was a work of decreation, God started his work of recreation. By wiping out mankind, God pushes the reset button, and just as he did with Adam, God blesses Noah and his family with a purpose. He calls them to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, this is clearly an echo of God's instruction to Adam and Eve and how to care for and enjoy creation. Again, just as with Adam and Eve, this command is itself a blessing. The only two differences with the command between Adam and Uh, And the one of Noah is that God expands the dominion in two main ways. First, it gives man dominion over the animals for food. And secondly, it gives a new ethic for the sanctity of life. By this, God shows how much he values human life. And as his children, so should we. Now, we also see a promise in this covenant. There's a new beginning, there's a new promise. In verses 9 through 11, God makes a new promise. He binds himself not only to man, but also to all the animals on the face of the earth. He promises he will never again destroy all living things by flooding the earth. Now, does he do this because he reconsidered what he did? Do you think God felt bad about what he did with the flood and so he he regrets it? And then decides to, to, to make any promise? No. The reason God makes a covenant with Noah is not because he regrets the flawed, but it's because uh, what he did was right, and in his holiness, he was justified, fully justified in his judgment. But what he's doing here, he's not, he's not fixing it wrong. He makes this promise because he is revealing to his creation that he is a patient and gracious God. If you keep reading before the end of the chapter, you realize man is still very broken and deserves judgment. And yet God is binding himself to all living things that he will never do this again. And church, this is what we call common grace. Because the promise is not just to the Christian. The promise is not to his followers. The promise is to all mankind and creation. And that's what we call common grace. Though we all deserve death, God chooses to offer patience to his creation. With this promise, God then expands the covenant of grace he made with Adam and Eve, and he reveals a new level of his grace, of his kindness, and patience towards his creation. Notice that once again, it is God that initiates the covenant. This covenant is unilateral and unconditional. This promise is given to all living flesh. So we have a new beginning. We have a new promise. And now we have a new sign. In His kindness, God often gives us signs to remind us of His kindness. In this case, He gives not only Noah, He gives the sign not only to Noah, but to all of creation. He gives us a sign that reminds us of his patience and of his promise to never again strike down all of the earth. In verse 13, God says this. He says, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and earth. You see, God says he has put his bow in the cloud. Because in Hebrew, there's no word for rainbow. And so the word used here, the word bow, refers to an archer's bow, which is a weapon of war. What does this mean then? It means two things. Number one, that God has laid down his weapon. Number two, this bow is now pointing up. This bow is now pointing at God himself. Meaning that if he were to break his promise, the consequences would fall on him. You see, this covenant got made with Noah and of all creation, like I said, it's, it's called the covenant of preservation because God promises to never again destroy all of humanity as he did with the flood. This, again, is a promise of God's patience. But you see, God still hates sin. And God is still holy. And the consequences of sin today is still death, just as it was in Genesis 3. Sin is still as serious today as it was in the time of Noah. And though God promises not to destroy humanity as a whole with a flood, as individuals, we will one day stand before the Father and payment for our sin still needs to be made. And his patience. He is waiting for us to turn to him for salvation. To turn to the one deliverer that he promised in chapter 3 of Genesis. You may remember too that before God made a covenant with Noah. In chapter 8, verse 20, Genesis tells us that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and of some every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings unto the altar. So there's a sacrifice. And in verse 21, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. You see, God's covenant with Noah came after Noah's sacrifice. This reminds us of a greater sacrifice that would bring salvation to man. You see, The beauty of the gospel is that the bow of God's wrath was aimed indeed towards himself. And for those who are in Christ, that bow was aimed at Jesus at the cross, where he took the full blow of God's wrath for you and for me. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus brought about salvation. And this salvation is available to everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus. So let me ask you this morning. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Do you trust Jesus for salvation? God made a covenant with his people that he would never away, again, wipe us all away in the way that he did with the flood. God is a patient God. He is slow to anger. God is patient. And kind and abounding in steadfast love, yes, but God is still holy, yes. and He still just is still just. And so, when we stand before the Father, payment for our sins still need to be made. When it's your turn, will you be pointing at Jesus and say He already paid it all, or will you stand on your own and make payment? For your sin, you know that though God is patient and He has delayed judgment, the era of God's wrath is coming, and only those who hide behind the shield of Christ will be spared. Is that where you find yourself today? Is that where your hope is placed? Is it in Jesus, who made a new covenant? We will see. Then you come in in just a few weeks. Well, let me ask you this morning: Where is your faith for salvation? Where is your hope for salvation? Is it in Jesus, or is it in yourself, or is it in the things of this world that will not stand in the day of judgment? Why don't we pray, Heavenly Father? We thank you, Father, for this. For your sobering words. Father, for the sobering fact that you are a holy God. But we thank you that not only are you holy, but you are also good and kind and patient and abounding in steadfast love. Heavenly Father, help us never to presume in your kindness. Help us, Lord, to be humble and to call upon the name of Jesus, Lord, and to partake of the salvation that has been made available for us through Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray for those this morning that may not yet know you. I pray, Father, that today would be the day when they hear the name of Jesus and when they decide, this is where I want to go. He is who I want to follow. Christ, the shield, is a shield that I want to stand behind. Heavenly Father, I pray for salvation, Lord. I pray as well for those of us who have called upon the name of Jesus, Lord, but at times forget of your kindness and your patience, Lord, and take it for granted. Would you, Father, uh, steer our affections toward you this morning, Father, that we would delight in your commands and that we would delight in the fact that you are patient and good and kind. Heavenly Father, we submit to you this morning and we want to give you worship and honor. In the name of your Son, Jesus, I pray. Amen.